our scripture this morning is Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give us what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. As we end our Psalms series this week, I was really thinking about how could we bring closure to all that God has taught us. And, and as I was looking at this, I'm, Psalm 85 struck my, struck my mind because of the emphasis on revival. And so what, what, what I aim to do today is, is for us to let the Scripture define what revival is and how we get to experience that on a daily basis. All of us in here today uh, have gone, are going, or will go through a spiritual desert. What's a spiritual desert? It's one of those dry times in your life where you, you are a follower of Jesus or you're interested in the things of Jesus, but you just don't feel like you have a heartbeat inside of you for the things of God. We go through those things. Some of you are now. Uh, so what's it feel like? It feels like cynicism where encouragement used to exist coming from your lips. It feels like the fear of man in place of the fear of God. It feels like selfishness in the place of selflessness. It feels like service out of duty more than service out of joy. It feels like isolation in the place of community and interdependency. It feels like withdrawal. In the place of engagement, it feels like anxiety in the place of worship. Have you experienced this before? Have you been through a season like that? If you have, this sermon uh, will bring you life this morning. And if you're not, you're not going through one of those seasons right now, this will be one of those things that you want to kind of tuck in your back pocket and remember for those days. Um, so, so my aim today is to, to let the Scriptures really redefine what revival is and how we can experience it. And that's why the big, the big idea, the big point that I, I think the Scripture makes for us today is this. Revival can be a constant reality for the Spirit-filled follower of Jesus. This can be a consistent reality for us. So I want to I share a couple of my favorite definitions of revival with us this morning. The first one is this. This is by C.E. Autry, and he says this, Revival is a reanimating of those who already possess life. It revives spiritual life, which is in a state of declension. So it's a reanimating. I love the liveliness of that definition. 
Or Roy Hessian puts it a little more simply. He says this, revival is the life of Jesus poured into human hearts. Revival is the life of Jesus poured into human hearts. I mean, think about this. Jesus is always victorious. Whatever our experiences in this life may be, Jesus' power is boundless. Nothing stops it. And our role is to get ourselves aligned with Jesus so that His power can flow through us regardless of what our circumstances are in that moment. His power flows in and through us. And that's what revival is. To, to be revived. To, to, vive means to live. To, to live again. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that He'll always apply the work of Jesus to our lives. But we have a responsibility to line ourselves up with the work of God. So, I, I, there's a, a Scripture that comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 7 that I think is a vignette of what Psalm 85 is talking about. It could be a lens for us to look at Psalm 85 through. So I want to read it for you real quick. And I want you to pay attention to the four themes that we pick up in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. He says this, If my people who are called by my name, that is people belonging to God, trusting in Him, if they do this, humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways and repent, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. So the four themes for us to kind of have consistent revival with the Lord regardless of our circumstances are this. Deep humility. That's what we hear. Deep humility. Desperate prayer. Keyword desperate. Diligent repentance. So it's a frequent basis in us. And delighted expectancy. This is what we're going to walk through in Psalm 85 here. So uh, deep humility. Let's look at this. I'm going to read Psalm 85, 1-4 through four for us again here. Listen to the words here. Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Now, the guys that are writing this are the sons of Korah. That's important. We're going to come back to that. He goes on to say, You forgave their iniquity. You covered all their sin. You withdrew Your wrath. You turned from Your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away Your indignation toward us. In order for us to talk about what true, genuine revival is from the Scriptures, we have to talk about this, this false front that most of us are familiar with, which is revivalism. What is revivalism? Revivalism is something that is manufactured by man that, that gives a, a feeling of the movement of God without the substance of it. We've experienced this before in our lives. It's the reason why we chase these emotional highs. And I would say the emotions do follow a genuine encounter with God. Mass salvations follow a genuine encounter with God through a group of people. We see this in the Bible. There's 16 revivals documented in the Scriptures. There's numerous ones in the history of the church. One of my professors uh, for the program that I'm going through right now uh, was was the guy that, uh, in, I think it's 1995, he was the guy that his classroom started the Wheaton Revival. Dr. Booker. 
And uh, Dr. Bucher, during this revival that their class was having, which was consistent prayer and worship around the clock. They just couldn't get enough of Jesus. During this time, he had met in a meeting with another professor. And this professor was skeptical and cynical toward the reality of this revival, I guess. And he says, he says something like this to Dr. Bucher. He says, tell me about the... What does he say? He says, tell me about the uh, academic excellence of your students during this so-called revival. And Dr. Booker looked at him and he said this, it's been terrible for the academic world. Revival, if, you, if, you, if you're wanting something that will that help produce better grades and better students, it's been terrible. But let me tell you what has happened. None of my students are in class because they've all went home. Because they've been so convicted of their sin, they're repenting and making amends with people, they're being reconciled, they're sharing the gospel with people that they've neglected their entire lives. And because of that, I think I have the best students in the world. This is what happens when revival settles on our hearts. Is there's this desire to be humbled and reconciled to God. And every documented revival in the history of the church there has been a deep humility that has preceded the movement of God among His people. A deep humility. You know why? Because revival leads to a broken and humbled spirit before Jesus. And the more frequently that this happens, the more you know Jesus' strength and Jesus' power in and through your life. So let's turn to Psalm 85 now as we look at this concept, this reality of revival. Sons of Korah write this. Sons of Korah, really interesting guys. I mean, think about it like this. Um, you know, your family could be known for helping to build uh, the first temple in, in Jewish history. Your family could be known as the first family to, to exit out of Egypt in the Exodus. You know what the, the sons of Korah are known as? The sons of Korah are known as the guys in number 16 that rebel against Moses and Aaron and say, we need other leaders. And you know what happens to them? The earth opens up and it swallows them. This is the history of the sons of Korah. So any, anytime you would hear the, the, the name, the Korahites, this would come to mind because that's a pretty rare thing to happen for God's judgment to be immediate and to consume them. And so it's significant that the sons of Korah write about being revived because they knew what it was as a family to experience God's judgment. And they, they are living examples of God's grace because their family had been revived, had been brought back to life. I mean, if you look at verses 1-4, through four, there's, there's, kind of, there's kind of some realities here that, 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 that show how they are brought back to life. Because you were gracious and favorable. God's grace preceded their sin. Because you were gracious in favor, we experienced grace and favor. Because you forgave, we were forgiven. Because you redirected your wrath, we didn't have to experience it. This is all God's work coming to meet them. He's speaking of this union with God that is now available to them. The, the power and life of God flowing through them as they are humbled before Him. Notice how they mention in this psalm, Lord, You were favorable to Your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. 
I could think of a lot of people, a lot of examples that they could use, but they use Jacob. Do you remember who Jacob is in the Bible? Jacob is probably one of the most deceitful characters in the Scriptures, isn't he? I mean, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jacob, he, he steals his brother's birthright with some Halloween-style furry arms and a bowl of soup. It's what he does. I mean, he is deceitful. And they, Jacob comes to mind for the Korites because they see God's grace through how he restores Jacob. How he wrestles with him, how he changes his name, and he changes his identity. They know that God is gracious. And if they humble themselves, he will bring life back to them again. And he does that for us. He does that for us. Humility is birthed out of an honest assessment of how desperate we are before God. We, we are unable to learn humility in a classroom. We can read about it all day long, but it has to be experienced. It, we have to, have to be lowered in front of others before God, understanding our role in His role, His identity and our identity. Humility is marked by a known spiritual modesty. It's not looking to make itself known. This modesty is in place of arrogance and vanity that focus all of everyone else's attention on us. Instead, Jesus is the one that shines through. Andrew Murray says it like this. He writes this book called Humility. And this little book is one of those kind of gut punch books. It's like really small, but man, it just will cut you to pieces with conviction. He says this, Humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. So, You are humbled before God because you realize that He has to be gracious and you can never work your way toward Him. And so my question to you as we move through this and looking at the kind of the keys to experience revival is have you hit the bottom of yourself yet this week? Have you hit the bottom? Have you hit the bottom? Because the Scriptures say that Paul says in Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live in faith of the Son of God who died and gave Himself up for me. So what does that mean for us? It means that you can't live and God can't live in the same person. His work, His work through the power of the Holy Spirit is to, is to overcome the flesh in you and for you to experience more of His life each and every day. And I've found that God loves us so much That even when we don't choose humility, He will press it on us. So you may be going through a season right now where you're like, God, another thing has happened like this? Are you kidding me? Another thing has gone wrong? God, where are you in the middle of this? He's after your humility. Because that is the precondition for you experiencing a continuous state of revival in your life. He's after you becoming less and God becoming more, as John the Baptist declared in John 3.30. He's after that in each and every one of us. Next we go on in Psalm 85, 4-7. We see this sense of desperation. We see this sense of desperation. Here's what Psalm 85 says. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Our joy in God is dependent upon God bringing us back to life. He says, show us your steadfast love, O Lord. 
Show it to us. Make it obvious to us. Wake us up so that we can experience the joy that comes from knowing You. Desperation is the best instructor of prayer. We could read a million books on how to pray, what to pray, when to pray. You don't have any of those questions when you're desperate before the face of God. Desperation is the voice of your prayer. He's, the psalmist here is saying, don't just transform my situation. Transform my soul. Don't just give me better circumstances, but change my heart. But how many times would you and I settle for a different set of circumstances in the same old soul? God is after changing our hearts and changing our postures and changing how His life flows in and through us. A, a right heart and a renewed spirit are of greater gain than any, ter- any temporary circumstantial blessing that you could have. It's, it's so much better. Do you know why I don't pray? Maybe this is the same for you. I don't pray because I'm not desperate. That's why I don't pray. I get up and I have just... I have a, 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 a confidence that's kind of hidden, but I have a confidence that I can, I can own this day. I can get through this. I don't need God today. When I wake up and I don't pray, that is, the, that is the posture I have. Maybe it's not for you, but that's how it is for me. I don't pray because I'm not desperate. I'm like the church in Laodicea. Revelation 3.17 says this, For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's how I wake up on days that I don't, that I don't pray. I don't declare my need of God to be present and real in my life. And uh, John goes on to write this, For you say I'm rich and I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, that you are pitiable, you are poor, blind, and you are naked. Are you desperate before God this morning? That desperation that God brings upon us is the greatest gift that He could ever give us. You know why? Because we stop looking in other places to give us life. We stop trying to be revived by things that are lifeless, that don't have a pulse. My prayer is that God would save us from this. Save us from the the dead and hollow things that we chase that that we think will give us life. Our MO, a lot of times is this, to exhaust all options that we possibly can to give us life and to soothe our consciences. And when we get to the end of that list, then we get desperate before God. And I don't know why it is, but desperation is the best teacher of prayer. It's seeking. And so, if if you really want to walk in this revived state that God promises to us, you pray that God will make you desperate. Now, that's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? God, make me desperate for your face. And I promise He'll do it. He loves to do that before us. But prayer is nothing more than the voice of the desperate before the presence of God. That's what it is. I mean, it's like in, in Hosea 10.12. It says this, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love. 
And then he says this, break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. So what does it mean to break up the fallow ground? Do you have a place in your yard that, that doesn't have any grass, anybody? i got a few of those. Namely, the whole backyard, right? He's saying the nutrients are in the soil, but the ground has to be broken up for the seeds to do their job. The seed of the Gospel, friends, has to fall upon hearts that are broken and contrite and humble and desperate. That's where Gospel seed grows in us. Break up the fallow ground of your heart. This is what he's saying. It's a precondition. Let the Gospel seed take root in you. Are you desperate for His face today? Are you desperate for him? Next, the psalmist goes on to talk about really repentance. And the whole psalm talks about repentance because one, the sons of Korah write it. Two, they acknowledge the God of Jacob. And then they, they just they acknowledge God's graciousness and their, their, the reality they have to line their lives up with Him. But they say this in Psalm 85, uh, 8 and 9. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Keep us, God. Keep us in a state of repentance. Don't let us go back to the old way of living. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. Literally, in in verse 4 where He talks about restoring us, what He's saying is, turn us again. God's grace, in effect for us, always produces repentance in us because He brings us back to Himself to align us with who he is. This is why when Martin Luther nailed up the 95 Theses on that church in Wittenberg, Germany, the first thing that he wrote was what? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Repentance is not something that happens once in our life. It's something that constantly has to be going on in us. Because if it's not, we will try to get life from other things. Every single time we will. So my hope for our church is that we would just kind of kind of lift the curtain of this idea that repentance is something bad. To seeing it as something that gives us life. It is the way that we go back to the life that God promises to give us. We turn back to Him. And God is so pleased to turn our hearts toward Him. But we have to walk in faith as He does that. And to step into the obedience that He calls us to. Yesterday I was, yesterday I was at the Manhood Project with several men from New City Church. And there was, a, there was a fellow there that described just some situations that he had gone through where he had walked in some pretty deep sin. And, and he had kind of one of those big wake-up moments, you know, where like you're kind of really at the bottom. You know, and this is kind of a, this is kind of like, hey, I'm going to lose my marriage if things don't turn around here kind of moment. You know what he said? He said since that moment, he's learned that basically that repentance and forgiveness can be an instantaneous transaction. That it doesn't have to be this big emotional kind of pulsing reality for us to repent, but it can be as simple as, hey God, I just had, a, I just had an angry thought at my kid. Will you forgive me for that? I know that's not the heart 
That's, I know that's not your heart. Would you forgive me for that? Hey, I know I just looked at someone inappropriately and thought, a, thought a, an impure thought about them. God, would you forgive me for that? Would you give me clean hands and a pure heart? God, I just had this thought about the person that cut me off in traffic. It's the traditional Atlanta example, right? Happens every day though, right? It may happen on the way out of here. God, would you forgive me? Because when we let sin fester in our hearts, it hardens us. It hardens us. It, it makes the ground fallow. It makes it so that the gospel seeds just sit on top of and they don't penetrate the soil. God, would you break that up in us? Repentance is what breaks it up because it says we need to align ourselves with God and God says, come on home, son. Come on home, daughter. It always amazes me when I look at Luke 15 about the parable of the prodigal son. and I think a lot of times we think that that we have to go all the way back to God. Not understanding that He is the Father that's running toward us to receive us and assure us of our forgiveness. God is meeting you in your repentance. He is drawing you. He's wooing you into this idea of repentance. It's Acts 3.19 that we prayed about earlier today. Repent and turn back so that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I don't know exactly what times of refreshing are, but I'm sure that I want them. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I'm certain that I want it. So it's a promise to us when we repent, when we turn back to God, that He will refresh our souls. He will give us joy. This is one of the things that we try to work into every single worship service that we do because we want this to be a reality of every day of your life. That it's not about getting caught in your sin and then repenting, but it's about becoming aware of it and repenting. Even if no one else knows. You're letting the life of Jesus flow through your body when you turn back to Him. Lastly, this sense of expectancy. Psalm 85, 10-13. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. This is such poetic language of everything of God that we want to be true of us. I mean, steadfast love. Love that never changes. And faithfulness. A commitment to us righteousness so all of the all of the good deeds of Jesus applied to us and peace this idea of holistic harmony they meet and where else do they meet if not in the person of Jesus this is a prophecy of who Jesus is all of these things come together like a warm embrace like a kiss in the person of Jesus is what he's saying here. And, and, and though this is not our reality every day, this is what the revived life looks like. We experience a little bit more of this reality every single day that we are humbled before the face of God, we are broken before Him, and we turn back to Him in repentance. This sense of expectancy that God's not done with me yet. That maybe there's more here than meets the eye. 
that God has great things in store for us. We're at peace to worship God. I think that Colossians 3, verse 15, can almost be a funnel for us to sift our lives through if we're chasing this revived life. What's Colossians 3.15 say? It says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is what Psalm 85 is pointing to. All these characteristics and virtues meet in the person of Jesus. Well, let those virtues, let that peace rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. It's, it's, a, it's a funnel that we pour the substance of our life through. And, and the things in our life, the realities in our life that, that are not filled with, with, with a sense of peace and harmony are things we probably need to repent of. Now, but here's the catch. We think they're going to be circumstances. Most of the time, they're not going to be circumstances. They're going to be postures of our hearts, like pride, like, like fear, like, like doubt. Whenever something happens in our lives, we funnel it through that idea, is, is the peace of Christ reigning in my heart this morning? And we trace it down and we see what's blocking the peace of Christ from reigning in our hearts. That's where repentance comes. That's where the, the fallow ground has to be broken up and humility has to occur. And God blesses us with this sense of a revived life. So where are you this morning? Don't we all want this? We don't want to jump from spiritual high to spiritual high. We want to have a sense of Christ's presence every single day of our life. And it comes from being humble in light of who God is and who we are. It comes from a sense of desperation as we look at that gap of who God is and who we are. And then it comes through repentance and us lining ourselves up with who God is. And letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. That's the expectant hope that we have. Is that the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts more today than it did yesterday. G.K. Chesterton says, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. The revived person has the life and blood of Jesus flowing through your veins. And we can swim upstream in this. As we are surrounded with death and decay in this world, we can be revived. This is the promise of Psalm 85. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come to You and we seek to be revived in your, in your presence, God. To be revived with Your presence. Father, don't let us fear being humbled before You. Father, I pray that repentance would be a daily occurrence for us. Because our hope isn't found in how well we manage sin. It's found in the peace that comes from knowing You. So Lord, I pray that You'd meet us today. I pray that You would meet our, our children that are in here today, our elementary age school kids. God, I pray that they would, would know the love of Jesus. Lord, I pray for our parents in here today that they would be filled with grace and peace to extend to their kids. Lord, I pray 
for those that are hurting and broken in very profound ways this morning, that you would show them that humility is the precondition of the revived life. Would we seek to be humbled? Because that's what it looks like to seek to be made alive in you. So Lord, I pray that you'd pour your grace upon us as we continue in worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.